This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back for another great episode of Tide Chasers Podcast. For each show, we try to bring you the best guests from across the fishing industry. Before we get started, please remember, you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Tide underscore Chasers, and listen to us on all major podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Waypoint TV. Also, if you haven't already, uh, make sure to listen to our most recent episode with Spencer Smith of Uncle Banks Backwater Adventures. Uh, Kwa and I got the chance to talk with him about fishing opportunities in South Florida. Um, and also, we had another recent episode with the High Mar Striper Club, where we got to talk lots of things uh, with them that are new and exciting that they have coming up. Um, so make sure to check out both those episodes. Um, and tonight we have an awesome guest. But before we get started, I'd like to welcome my co-host, Bobby. How you doing, Bobby? Good, Tyler. What's going on with you? Oh, it's it's been good. Uh, you know, coming off a really special moment out there with Quad, catching a giant cobia while we were albie fishing. Totally unexpected, but um, can't beat that. And and otherwise, it's it's been a little hot and humid out there. I'm ready for cooler weather. Yeah, it's coming. This is the week. Looking forward to it. All right. Well, uh, we won't waste any more time, but today we'd like to welcome on Drew Bone. Um, in addition to being the owner of and head guide of Bone Fly Fishing, he is also a member of the USA Youth Fly Fishing Team. As a member of that team, Drew has won numerous awards, including gold at the 2023 World Championships this year. Uh, we're excited to chat with him to learn more about his time with the team and also about fly fishing for trout in his home state of New Mexico. How you doing, Drew? I'm doing great. How are you guys doing? Oh, we're doing well. I'm super excited to hear more about your experiences and also about New Mexico because I love fly fishing for trout. I know Bobby does too, and I have never been in New Mexico. Absolutely. Yeah, we've got a lot of great water to fish here. Sweet. Bobby, have you been in New Mexico? No, it's been on my list. I've been thinking about hitting the San Juan for many, many years. Uh, heard the typical stories about fishing San Juan worms with 7x and size 26 flies and all those fun things but i've never actually been out there cool i haven't been out there either so i'm looking forward to hearing more about it but uh drew why don't we get started by just 
getting to know you a little bit more. Maybe you could tell us how you got started in, in fly fishing. Yeah, so uh, my parents have always, they don't do it a lot, but they've always done it to some extent, like in the summers when we, we would go camping as a family. So I think the first time I picked up a fly rod, I was around two years old, and I didn't do it a lot at that age, obviously, but but I was always exposed to it, and I just became more passionate about it as I got older, and, and then it just took off from there. That's awesome. I, I think it's so cool that you got started so young because I know for the longest time, even up through my high school years, I just looked at fly fishing as something that I probably would never do and something that, you know, I, I was probably never going to be coordinated enough to do. And now it's all I think about a lot of times. Right. Yeah, no, it's, it's definitely a special sport and it's something that I plan on doing the rest of my life and have also made a career out of. So that's a big part of, part of what I do and who I am. You've always been in New Mexico, Drew? Yeah, yeah. I was born and raised in, in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And and now I'm right now living up in the northwestern part of the state on the famous San Juan River where I've, I started my guide business at the beginning of this year. And and so I've, I've been really busy with that this year. And that's been great. You got to dispel the rumors for us. I'm sure a lot of people who think about New Mexico down in the southwest think that it's just a desert. But it's really more than that, isn't it? Yeah, no, a lot of people just think of it as a desert and, and no trout, but, and there is a lot of desert, but it's a really diverse state. And, and we do have a lot of trout fishing in the Northern part of the state. And, and while you can be in the desert, there's also places you can go and fish really, really high up in the high country at high elevations and even some Alpine stuff for some cutties. And, and then uh, we've got some really phenomenal tailwaters like the San Juan. So we've got a, We've got a lot of variety here as trout fishing goes and as far as landscape goes as well. Sweet. And I'm looking forward to more about that. But before we kind of get into um, fly fishing in New Mexico, um, we know that one of your uh, biggest accomplishments is being a member of the USA uh, fly, youth fly fishing team. So maybe you could tell us a little bit more about how you got involved in the team and, and what all goes into being a member of it. Yeah, for sure. So I was... 13 when I first found out about the team through social media and became interested in the team. And the, the first step to becoming involved with the youth team is attending one of the annual clinics. So I attended uh, one of the youth team clinics in 2019, which was held in Sun Valley, Idaho. And then the national championship, which is supposed to take place after that was canceled for COVID in 2020, but they did add a couple more members that year and I was selected as a team member and then the following year I fished my first national championship and was selected for the world championship in Italy which uh, took place last year and then at the last national championship I was selected for this year's world championship which took place in Bosnia which was the last one I was eligible for and and so it's been a been a great experience and I've, I've learned a lot and met a lot of great people and it's it's definitely been a been a really important part of my life for sure how do they choose who's on the team i mean you're saying you kept getting chosen is that just guy who catches the most fish guy who's technically most sound what are the yeah, qualifications so 
attend those those clinics and those national championships, the coaches are, are watching you fish and they also look at past results from other competitions and, and so there's a a variety of things that go into play when they're when they're selecting new team members. And there's about fifteen kids in the country that are on the team and six of those are, are chosen for the world championship each year. Wow. So that's pretty selective then. Only fifteen fifteen in the country and then narrowed down to six. That's an amazing yeah. achievement. Yeah. Yes, sir. I can't imagine what it must be like to fish having a coach watch you and be evaluating you because I know how I feel when people watch me fish, especially fly fishing. I I kind of feel like I'm playing golf where I, I screw up a lot more when someone's watching me than I do if I'm just by myself doing my own thing. Yeah, no, I I enjoy the pressure and I've always been a competitive person, which is how I also part of how I found out about the competitive side of fly fishing. And, and I don't know, I, I kind of like that feeling of, of competing and trying to perform under pressure. Did you find that, you know, the first time you went out to, to try out at one of those clinics, was it just kind of, you know, you went into it with the mindset of, you know, I want to win this. I want to be a part of this team. Or was it just, I'm going to go try this out. And if it works out great, if not, you know, just enjoy the experience. No, I, I definitely went into it. Uh, even before I attended my first clinic, I, I kind of knew that being a, a team member was something that that I was a big goal of mine and, and that I was going to work towards and and felt like I could make it happen eventually. And with enough hard work and dedication, I was able to make that happen, which was, which was really awesome. Do you plan on carrying on? I mean, there's obviously now you've aged out of the youth group, right? So yeah, was- yeah. There is the U.S. men's team, and and I may, I may transition into that later down the road. But but I've this year, at least in the next upcoming years, I'm going to kind of focus most of my time and effort on my guiding business, which I started this year. Awesome. Um. So how's that work with the team? Is it kind of like is everyone have to be really well-rounded at all aspects of fly fishing or is, is it everyone has, you know, their own strengths and you kind of play off those strengths as members of the team? Yeah. I mean, everyone definitely has their own strengths, but, but everyone on the team is, especially the world championship team has to be a a really well-rounded angler and be proficient at fishing lakes and rivers with nymphing and dry flies and streamers and, and a variety of tactics and, being able to to read those when the or I guess adapt to those situations and and execute in a competition setting. Cool. What's the training process like? How do you go about preparing for a competition? Uh you you can I would I would spend a lot of time just doing mini comps with myself where you might give yourself a designated stretch water with a time limit and I guess it's kind of like a mock comp in a way and then we also ha- would have a, a couple team practices throughout the year where we, where we would all be able to get together as a team and, and work on stuff with each other so there's a variety of things that we would do to to prepare and get to the level that we needed to be at how do you know odd question there's there's days fish just don't bite how do you know you just didn't suck that day 
And how do you know it's actually the fish? Like, like, where do you draw the line for it was just a tough day or I didn't figure it out good enough and I did things wrong? Uh, I mean, everyone has their tough days, I guess. The, those tough days are kind of always keep you wondering and I guess keep you coming back in a way to it because that can be frustrating. So I guess trying to, I guess sometimes I beat myself up thinking about what I did wrong or what could have done differently or what I could do the next time. And so, yeah, I, know, yeah, I, just, I would think about it's, it. It's one of those things where, Right, I'm just diving deep into this now because I, I don't know if there's a right or wrong answer, right? You could think back on it and go, I should have did this or I should have added more split shots or maybe I should have threw some meat, right? And and that's what's happening. But even if you did those things, it's not like the coach can look back and say, you should have did that. That was the right answer. You messed up. Right, yeah. Yeah, I know I always feel like, I mean, no matter how good you can get, you can fly fishing. There's always room for improvement, which I – is part of the reason I love it so much, and and so I, I don't know, trout are always up to feed. So I think that I don't know. I guess there's never really an excuse, and there's always things you probably could have done differently. Yeah. All right. Just just curious about that because there's tough days out there. I mean, we all have them, and I always think back and I rack my brain and what I could do, what I what I should have done. And sometimes I think about it, and it's like even if I did that, maybe it was just a bad day. Maybe the fish yeah. is eating, right? I mean, so. It's an interesting idea. Yeah, yeah for you know, sure. You know what this means, Bobby? No. It means that the next time we're on a float trip, we're going to bring a camera, we're going to film each other, and then we're going to go back and watch film like football. And we're going to we're gonna sit in the room and criticize each other about what we should have done better. Well, that's why, I mean, done. I don't think – I mean, I've done it with you, Tyler. I don't think they have the luxury there, but I always do like dueling rods. So, like, we'll find a fish, and I'll set up three dry fly rods with three different flies. And then we pretty much just trade rods the whole time. Like you, you cast one over, you put five drifts over. I switch out the rod for the other one that has a fly in it. And then while you're casting that one, I'm switching out the fly already. So we can do that like really quick and cycle through that. But when you're on the team and you have a limited time, like you can't do dueling rods kind of like that idea and really cycle through a ton of flies and so forth. And what's Drew? Is that something you guys think about and do, or is it like you pick a tactic and you just stick with it? It's not, not exactly how you're talking about, but um the world championships i had four rods set up on my river sessions and we had seven set up on the lakes just especially on the lake just having a bunch of different sinking lines uh and and then on the rivers nymphing rods streamer rods and dry fly rods and i'm a big believer that presentation is a lot more important than the pattern and i think that fly patterns aren't all always that that important or they don't make as big of a difference as your presentation does gotcha yeah i believe that too but there's just certain situations where i know what they're eating and i can see it and you just got to yeah. figure out the right color and the right size right and you got to just cycle through them real quick as quickly as you can really yeah yeah i can understand that because you know i would say that nymphing is definitely my strength in fly fishing and what i enjoy doing the most and there's a lot of times where it doesn't matter what exact pattern I'm using when I nymph, if it's just around the size that it needs to be, it could be anything, but you know, like you said, getting that right drift through that run, that's, what's going to set me up for success doing that. Maybe not necessarily if it's the exact nymph that matches what's, you know, under the rocks in the stream. Right. 
Yeah. So what do the what do the competitions uh, look like? You know, I know you've been in a number of them. What's kind of the general structure of how those competitions are? Yeah. So at the World Championship, um, there's six of us. One of one of the team members is an alternate, so there's only five fishing at a time. Each country sends six kids as well, with one being an alternate. And you're randomly drawn groups, and there's five different sessions. So when I when you get on the bus, everyone else on the bus going to that session is from a different country. And there's a stretch of river that's divided into beats. That a, a beat is just a stretch of water that uh, you're randomly drawn. And there's a controller on the bank with you, and you get three hours to fish that beat. And your goal is to catch as many fish as you possibly can. And and hope that it was good enough. And then, um, so there's five of those sessions. And, and if you win a session, that's, you take one placing point. So your, your goal by the end of the competition is to have as few placing points as possible. And, uh, then if there's a tie on placing points, then it comes down to fish numbers, but, but yeah, it's, it's pretty straightforward. So is, is all the scoring kind of based on just numbers of fish you catch, or is there any kind of, uh, yeah thing for size of fish yeah numbers and size so the controller the judge on the bank with you has a has a score tray so every time you catch a fish you you take it to them and they measure every fish and write it all down so it has to be landed in that right if i recall yes yep like, and every fish has to be a minimum of 20 centimeters as well got it yeah yep. so no self-releasing which i love in the sport no, nope, so that, nope. that would not fly. <laughs> um, nope. I want to know about bus dynamics. I mean, we could always talk about fishing, but you get chosen and you get on the bus. And I don't know, where, where are the other countries? Argentina, China, like you have kids from all licks of the world, right? Yeah, no, it's really cool uh, getting to talk to everyone because everyone else on the bus is from a different country. It's Most of the kids are, uh, most of the European countries have teams there. And then there's uh, South Africa has a team. Sometimes Canada has a team. Uh, but most of the countries are definitely European teams. Hmm. So pretty much everyone speaks English. You, there's not a, a language. Yeah, most, uh, a lot, it seems like a lot of people in Europe speak English. In Italy, they didn't speak very good English. But in Bosnia, they, they spoke pretty good English. Got it. Got it. And then when you do get on the bus, so you start to converse, where are you from? What age are you? Do you guys talk tactics at all? Or is it like a secret for the, the entire oh, time? Super, super secretive. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we might talk a little bit after the competition, but we don't talk much during the competition. I'm picturing your fly box has like fingerprint ID, yeah. like security code, three yeah, biometrics on it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, no. We're everyone's definitely pretty protective and secretive over what we're doing. What are the what are the rules in these competitions? Because I remember uh there was I don't remember where I saw it, but there was there was a competition where you you're not allowed to use split shot. Like all your weight has to be built into the flies. Is that like a similar rule that carries through yeah, I know. stuff? There's of different rules but no indicators no split shot are, are definitely two big ones no indicators no no so oh, that's i'm done that your style nymphing comes into play 
And w w I mean, I guess you're on smaller rivers, though. Like, what if you're on a big river system? There's still no indicators. Uh, some of the rivers are huge. Yeah. So interesting. It kind of a water type, but if you if we do have to fish a suspension rig, it's it's a lot of dry dropper fishing. You are allowed to fish a dry dropper as long as your, I guess, indicator fly has a hook on it. It's it's allowed. Very cool. I could not imagine yeah. fishing without an indicator. I think I would be, I guess I could do the dry dropper, but indicator yeah. is a big part of what I do. I think I'd be, uh, I'd be finishing in last place for sure. So yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't struggle with that. I struggle with the weight built into the fly aspect of it. Uh, mostly because I can't. Yeah, and Bosnia... Go ahead. Yeah. Oh, I was saying Bosnia in Bosnia, we were only allowed to fish one fly. So we were fishing super, super heavy nymphs. Gotcha. Yeah. Yep. Another thing to put into because I like having a point fly. Right. Um, yeah, I know it's a little bit different, but because we were fishing some really big, heavy water that we had to get down in with, with one fly, which was difficult in some places, but, but we had some pretty heavy bugs that we could make it happen. Now, throughout a competition, you know, for example, the world championship you fished, are you just, are they having you fish the same river throughout the championship or do they take you to a different body of water each day? In Italy, it was different bodies of water each day. And then in Bosnia, it was all on one river, but each, I guess it was split into four different venues. So even though it was the same river, each venue we fished was, was a little bit different. Okay. How do you go about trying to, you know, learn about or prepare for the body of water ahead of time, you know, going from trout fishing in, in New Mexico to trout fishing in Bosnia. I mean, I'm sure there's some differences. I'm just wondering how you go about trying to learn about that body of water before you get there, or I, I don't know, maybe it's a secret until you get there. Yeah. I mean, at world championships, we always have a guide and we're, we're there. We had about a week of practice before the competition started. And so there's designated practice stretches and we're doing as much research as we can before we go over there. But at the end of the day, trout are, are still trout and we use the same flies and they still behave the same. So even though you're on the other side of the world, it's, it's still pretty similar. I think that's a good mindset to have, you know, trying not to, you know, I could see myself, you know, thinking about, oh, this is such a different place, you know, and immediately just forgetting about all the things that I know that work from home, you know, whereas that's yeah. probably what your, your bread and butter is trying to think about, okay, how do I do things at home? How can I apply that here and make it successful? Yeah, no, we definitely fish the same way over there as we do here. What is the go-to fly? Um, a lot of pretty simple names we were fishing a lot of pheasant tail variations and some like cdc soft tackle pheasant tails were were pretty good a lot of dry fly fishing a little bit of streamer fishing but everything's pretty straightforward there's nothing real secretive i guess as far i mean there's different variations of stuff that that work better than others but everything's it's it's all pretty simple all right sign me up i'm ready <laughs> the one thing i'm thinking about is do they kind of do a good job of spreading you out in the section of river that you're fishing you know i'm just i'm picturing it in this competition everybody you know you wouldn't want to be elbow to elbow with people but may maybe that's the case 
No, so you're randomly drawn a beat, and in this competition, it seems like I remember each beat was a hundred to two hundred yards, and so you had a. I mean, it's not a ton of water, but it's a, you're not shoulder to shoulder. Nice. In that hundred to two hundred yards, how many fish are you catching? Uh, I think the highest number session I had was in the mid to high forties. Uh, <laughs> All right, that, that stretch was higher numbers for sure, and then it seems like the later sessions were anywhere from 15 to 25 fish. One of the stretches of river was pretty low density and it didn't take that many fish. I think everyone was averaging. Some people are blanking, but it was not taking more than 10 fish to win. I think that'd be me. I'd, I'd be drawing the blank. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just thinking about like a stretch of water. I usually fish and I, you know, a good day is we get three, maybe four is an excellent day and to catch 40 is just insane yeah yeah no it's it's good we had we had some good sessions and we our whole team fished really well but, but. bobby do you Where? think we do a 40 fish in a 200 yard stretch up at dream mile that's the only thing i can think of that we might come well forward. yeah yeah i think we could manage that <laughs> well that's where we'll go train then yeah, you guys no. have to come up. On we, I had a guide trip today, and they kept track, and we put forty-eight in the net today. Unbelievable, forty-eight in the net. Wow. What was the biggest? Uh, probably around a twenty-inch brown. Solid. Good day. Jeez. Yeah, that Great is a day. good day. I mean, it's September eleventh, and maybe we should do a little shout out to our first responders on this fine day. Um. But is this a good time to be in New Mexico? September, fall, the beginning of fall? Yeah. It's not like some of the other states further north in the west. They get have really harsh winters. We have a pretty mild winter. So we're lucky on the San Juan that we can fish it 365 days a year. And it's the water temp stays pretty much the same. And it fishes really consistently throughout the year. So it's a great place to guide for sure. Gotcha. And you have prolific hatches and everything. I guess we kind of skip right into Tell us about the San Juan River, right? Yeah, no, crazy hatches. The the betas hatch was unbelievable today, and it's a the definitely the best midge hatches I've seen anywhere. Yeah, it's not what we like to hear. We don't like to think about midges. I want to hear about grasshoppers and drakes and oh yeah, great hopper fishing too. Mostly yeah. summer, I'm assuming. Yeah, yeah. The July is a great time just hitting the banks of the hoppers definitely produces quite a few fish yeah when I was out in Yellowstone back in I guess that was the third week of July that was pretty much all we fished every day was a hopper in some fashion usually it was like some kind of giant you know chubby Chernobyl or some other hopper pattern at, at least as a as you know a dry dropper with some other small nymph on it but I was Definitely amazed with how many hoppers there were. I mean, it was like every step you take, they were flying away, and you could hear them all the time. It was really yeah. cool. Yeah, no, that's definitely get the same thing over here. 
So, you know, we started to talk a little bit about your, um, your guide business. Maybe you can tell us, you know, how did you return from the world championships uh, and then get into guiding? Uh, so I started my business, the world championship took place in July and I started the guiding at the beginning of this year. And I've kind of always known from a fairly young age that I wanted to make a career out of it and that guiding is what I wanted to do. To do. And, and I started my business at the beginning of this year and it's, it's been going really well. So, and I've been having a lot of fun with it and all the trips have been going well and it's definitely the long-term plan. You're working independently, huh? Yes. Yep. Fair enough. Is there a big startup cost in New Mexico? I mean, is there licenses and LLCs and everything you got to get set up? Or is it just you decide? Yeah. To no, you definitely have to have your LLC and your business. And the guide permits on the San Juan are not nearly as expensive as they are on rivers in other states. So sure. it's definitely pretty easy place to go independent which is great but yeah i mean it, it could be a lot worse in other states for sure yeah yeah what what's uh what's competition like out there i mean we're from the northeast so i mostly think about the delaware river where you if you throw a stone out of your boat you're gonna end up hitting another boat i think most of the time yeah no uh i mean it can be like that but i mean we, we floated the lower river today and there's three boats down there total. Hmm, nice. eight months, so it's not, I don't know, up, up at the top where it's more busy. I mean, a busy day and the whole river might be, I mean, average is maybe 25 to 30 boats on a weekend. So it's not, I mean, it's busy, but it's not, not at the same level, level as other places, which is nice. Yeah. yeah I think that sounds on par with the Delaware. I mean, during busy season, during, Hendrickson season, March Brown season, you get your 25 to 30 boats on your stretch. Um, but other than that, it's usually manageable in my mind. But, you know, that scares some people. I mean, seeing six or seven boats and you you basically go down with them the whole time. It's not like you lose them, right? <laughs> you kind of just leapfrog all day. Yeah. Uh, it scares some people. So, I mean, you go out for peace and quiet and you end up piggybacking the whole time or something. Yeah, no, we definitely, I mean... I like to start my trips a little bit earlier in the morning and get ahead of those people sometimes. And hmm. I don't know, everyone for the most part is pretty cool out here and we all know each other. And, and so it's, it's definitely a, a great community and it's a lot of fun for sure. So yeah. are you primarily fishing out of a drift boat or do you also do uh wade trips as well? I do wade trips, but, pretty much all all of our fishing is out of a drift boat it is a a pretty popular river to wade fish as well but i'm i prefer this river from a boat for sure yeah i feel like definitely you know having been on a drift boat with bobby a number of times now for the delaware it's it definitely offers a unique way to cover a lot of water that you wouldn't get to experience if you were just trying to you know drive around by car and get out and wait a few spots Absolutely. Yeah, I know the boat's a game changer for sure. You can cover a lot of water. Definitely, a, it, it doesn't compare to wade fishing when you're trying to do streamer fishing or hit the banks with hoppers or anything like that. You ever have that feeling, Drew, that you like should have stayed in one place or you always want to know what's up around the corner and can it get better? Yeah, I mean, to some extent, but I guess 
you kind of have an idea of what's going on with the river when you're when you float it every day and and you kind of understand the hatches and what what stretches are fishing good and what's not and if you're out there enough you can you're always kind of seeing that slowly change and so it's predictable to some extent yeah i hear you uh walk us through san juan river seasons uh summer's definitely the busy season uh a lot of people still guide throughout the winter though and fish is great throughout the winter and fish is great all year but um i like the summer i like fishing the summer when it's warm for sure and you can throw dry flies and streamer fishing's good and the hatches are good but but yeah i mean the midge hatches are consistent year round and the betas hatches can be really good so it's pretty consistent year round now speaking of the midge hatches uh when i first kind of was talking with someone about the the San Juan River um, and the mid hatches. They were telling me about a fly called the dead chicken fly. Are you familiar with that one? Yeah, yeah, a little dry fly. Yeah, I heard it's isn't it something like it's almost like a cluster of midges together that when the mid hatch gets so prolific, you have to throw something that looks like a cluster of them if you want to get a trout to come yeah. up and eat it. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, when the mid hatches are on, and some of those back eddies that bugs get sucked into and stuck in, there's just giant clusters of them. It's, it's crazy. And the fish just gorges themselves on them. Yeah. That sounds awesome. I I've been meaning to look up a video and watch, watch people using it or watching, uh, watch trout come up and eat that fly. That just sounds so cool. That yeah. there's, there's that many that you got to throw something that looks like a giant cluster of them. Oh yeah. And I mean, when you're wade fishing and the midge hatches are on there, just you look at your waders and your waders are just covered in midges hatching. It's, do you uh, not throw san juan worms a little bit we uh back in high water we, we definitely threw some some worm patterns but um uh, i mean shoot i would rather throw a squirmy worm personally <laughs> me me too but i felt like that's where isn't that where the san juan worm was named right yeah no i mean uh a long time ago that's what everyone used out here but but to be honest, I don't really think San Juan worms work that well on the San Juan. It's <laughs> <laughs> kind of what I wanted you to say, so I led you into it. But I just, you know, I've heard stories about people using like microscopic San Juan worms way back in the day, like literally size 26 San Juan worms. Yeah, um, no, I don't even think I have a single San Juan worm in my box. It's all for the tourists, Bobby. It's all for the tourists. <laughs> The fly shops um, are all sold out, but they don't work at all. <laughs> exactly. Um, can you give us a breakdown? Like what, you know, I've heard that the San Juan is known for big rainbows. So is it mostly a rainbow fishery or a brown trout or is it a little bit of both? Yeah, it kind of depends on the stretch. So in the, in the quality water, which is the top four miles where everything's catch and release and barbless and kind of fly fishing only in a way. It's a, a lot of rainbows, a lot of really big rainbows. There's a lot of brown trout in this river, but they're they're smarter than the rainbows for sure. So up there, most of the fish you catch are rainbows. Um, some days you have really good days and you'll catch a bunch of browns, but then you get down to the lower river, like where we were today, and, and it's mostly browns. Um, I don't know, I mean, we put 48 in the net, and maybe eight of them were rainbows. So it's definitely the brown trout are really prolific down there for sure. 
That's interesting to hear you say that because I feel like, and by maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like a lot of our fisheries up here in the Northeast is kind of reverse of that where the brown trout might be a little bit higher up. You know, if it's, an, if it's a tailwater, they're a little bit closer to the release, whereas the rainbows start to show up further down. Yeah, I think that the brown trout populations are just as high up there, but uh, I think that the that the rainbows are not as smart as the browns, and so sometimes I think maybe it's maybe it's harder to weed through the rainbows to get to the browns. Hmm. It's and they're still there, but down lower there's not as many rainbows, and so I guess you don't really have to worry about that as much. Yeah, no, our rivers are definitely not like that. I mean, uh. I'll just use the Delaware as an example again because I know it best, right? So on the west branch of the Delaware is pretty much all browns. I mean, it's an exciting day when you pull the west branch rainbow, actually. I mean, they're in there, but that water is colder, so the brown trans move up because the rainbows can survive a little bit better. So they're all over the main step, all over the lower river. Um, but actually, my biggest brown came out of the, the main stem on a hot day, 26-incher. Um, didn't expect it at all. But there he was, and I was like, I didn't even understand like why he was there because the water was so warm and it was rainbow territory. But you know, I think Drew's right. Probably they're there. It's just a matter of who's dumb that day. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think I've definitely found as well that in areas I fish with browns and rainbows, the rainbows definitely seem to be a little bit more opportunistic. The browns are definitely a little bit, like you said, smarter. Um, you know, they're they're way more selective. Than the rainbows are a lot of times at least places that i fish yeah i mean on most of the days the dumbest thing that i find in the river is me so <laughs> it doesn't usually matter if there's browns or rainbows there i don't catch them either way yeah <laughs> oh, <laughs> <and> if, <laughs> if bobby's not catching them on a trip i'm definitely not yeah. catching them on a yeah. trip that's for sure <laughs> <laughs> Cool. Um, well, do you, you know, we talked a lot about the San Juan River. So is that the only river that you guide in New Mexico? Or are there any other uh, places that you, you take trips on or like to take clients to? No, no, that's that's the only place I guide. I definitely, on my own time, I, I fish a lot of a lot of different rivers and lakes and a big variety of, of bodies of water. But the San Juan is, is the only place I take take guide trips to. You guys have a uh, pretty nice cutthroat trout too in New Mexico. They're probably one of my favorites, especially when I go out West. I think about cutthroats a lot. What's that fishery like in New Mexico? Yeah. yeah I mean, we, we have some small cutthroats in some of our streams and we have the native Rio Grande cutthroat that's, that's native to New Mexico. And uh, if you go up into some of the Alpine lakes, you can find some really big cutties really high up there in, in some of those still waters. And that's a lot of fun if you're willing to hike up there. Sweet. Yeah. I love the colors on cutthroats. They're, they're just so gorgeous. And, you know, I guess for me being out from the East and not having the opportunity to, to fish for them very often, they're just, it's like top of the list for me whenever I get to come out West thinking about cutthroats. Yeah, absolutely. They're gorgeous. But no, you guys also have a pretty unique trout species to New Mexico. You have Gila trout. Have you ever caught one of those yeah. before? Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it's not, that's kind of in the southwestern part of the state in the Gila wilderness and and they're pretty small fish but but they're really cool Drew I'm staring at a map trying to figure the San Juan River out 
and it's barely in New Mexico. Yeah, so everything that that we're fishing is is below Navajo Lake. Okay. And so, so we put in not that far below the dam, and then the quality waters is the first four miles, and then there's about three miles of we call it the bait water where there's fish are more heavily stocked in there, and your people are allowed to bait fish and keep fish in there, and then below that is the lower river, which is about an eight or eight and a half mile float through mostly private property and and that's what we did today so and we don't really fish much below that that take out at the lower on the lower river just just because you don't have to or just because it gets bad why, why don't we fish um i was tried to fish pretty far down the other day and it just the river kind of changes a lot and it doesn't the, the fish density drops a lot and it's not it's not very good down there but but from the dam all the way to the end of that lower float is phenomenal gotcha yeah yeah does it does it warm as it gets all the way down i'm guessing it does but yeah a little bit i mean it still stays pretty cold the water stays in the low 40s year round so it's a pretty crazy river it like flows south and then it flows back up north through um into co into utah and i was gonna say colorado into oh well it does maybe in colorado a little bit like yeah i know it a typical river river do you find that with it being a tailwater um did the flows stay pretty good throughout the year or do you ever have issues with with low water yeah i mean at the beginning of the year in the late winter and early spring we had some pretty low water but we had a really good snowpack this year, so we were able to have a big spring flush. Normally, they do a big spring flush every year, but we haven't had one in the last five years until this year. So there's a lot of silt built up. And so a lot of that got flushed out this year, which has been phenomenal. But flows are flows have been really good all summer. That's good. Yeah, that seems to be kind of the common theme from what I'm hearing from people in different part of the West is that, you know, all the snow that happened this, this past winter really – you know, made for some of the better flows that have been in the last couple of years. Yeah, no, we definitely had a lot more water this year, which is great. That's awesome. Cool. Um, Bobby, is there anything else about the San Juan river or about New Mexico trout fishing that uh, we didn't hit on yet that you wanted to get to? Um, no, not really. I mean, do you ever travel down to like fish, Rio Grande area and all those rivers down south, or you just pretty much stay up north? Yeah, so the Rio Grande from Colorado all the way. Once you get, I mean, for a little ways south of, of Taos, New Mexico, the Rio Grande is a, a really good trout fishery. But once you start getting closer to Santa Fe and Albuquerque, there's not really any trout in there at all. And the Rio Grande in southern New Mexico is zero trout it's gets really warm and it's really muddy down there but the rio grande northern part of the state is, is a lot of fun to fish yeah it was more a drew bone question than it was a san juan question i just want to know where else he's fished before and yeah no I've, mexico I've they, a lot of the stuff in southern colorado is, is pretty close to us and there's a lot of good water on, on that side of the border as well 
what are some of the rivers you like to fish in in Colorado? That's another state I have yet to be to yet to go to. Uh, in our region, so in, in southwestern Colorado, there's a the main river is the Animas River, which is a pretty big river, and that's a lot of fun to fish. And then there's some small creeks up in the high country that can be fun. You go catch some small cutties and some alpine lakes. And then south central Colorado, there's also some smaller rivers and another river called the Conejos River, which is a little bit bigger, and that's a lot of fun to fish. There's a, a really good salmon fly hatch over there, and the, there's a lot of great alpine fishing for cutties up there too. Very cool. Yeah, the alpine stillwater fishing is something I've I have yet to try. Um, yeah, that it can be very productive, and you can catch some really nice fish out of some of those alpine lakes. Absolutely, yeah, it's a lot of fun to do. Awesome. Um, well, Drew, we're going to start to get into some of our listeners' favorite questions here. Um, so, you know, you've traveled so many different places around the world and, and fished some incredible waters uh, in, in the southwestern part of the United States. Do you have a favorite place that you'd like to fish? Uh, actually, that, that Conejos River in south-central Colorado might be my favorite river to fish on my own. And I, I mean, I really love the San Juan as well, and it's, it's a, lot, a fun place to take other people, but I've, uh, one of my favorite places I've fished is the Missouri river in Montana. That was, I did that last year in April and that was a, a pretty epic trip. That's awesome. Yeah. I didn't get a chance to fish the Missouri when I was out in Montana, uh, back in July, but I fished the Gallatin and I fished the Madison. The Madison was really cool. Um, I don't know if you've ever gotten a chance to fish that before, but it's, the, the water level is not that high, but it's super difficult to wade. Really strong current. I mean, every rock is like the smoothest rock you could possibly imagine. Yeah, no, I've, I've gotten to fish both of those rivers a good handful of times. And that stretch of the Madison is just a big giant riffle. It's, it's a pretty unique river for sure. Definitely. A lot of moose too. You gotta be, uh, gotta be careful running into a moose out there. I, I came close to having an encounter, but didn't actually run into it. I was, I was a little disappointed, but also happy at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, they're cool to see, but not up close. Yeah, exactly. I'd rather see it from a distance. Not, not up close. Not like, not like Bobby. He's gotten uh, a little danger close to him a couple times or two. You gotta, you gotta be butt puckered when you're fishing. Sometimes it makes for a story. <laughs> um. Well, Drew, are there any, bucket list fish species that you have or or de bucket list destinations that you want to go fish yeah i mean there's definitely some some saltwater stuff that i have on the bucket list that i haven't checked off yet i would like to do tarpon and permit and redfish um as far as saltwater goes those are probably the top three on my list i'd also like to go catch a golden dorado sometime yeah me too it's on my list but a lot of fish to catch and a lot of places to go and not enough time. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. The golden Dorado would definitely be really cool. Um, I know that I have, I've caught a fair number of, of redfish down in Florida, tarpon and, and permit are still on my list, but um, yeah, we definitely, we definitely know some guys that get into that um, saltwater fly fishing down there in Florida for some of those species. It's, it's challenging. It's a fun time trying to sight fish for those. But um, definitely not easy. That's for sure. Yeah, no, I got to do bonefish one time in Mexico, and it was fun. They're pretty easy to catch, so it was definitely a great place to start as well as far as saltwater fishing goes. But 
but I definitely need to spend some more time on the on the saltwater game. I think I think permit will drive you mad. I have yet to see a permit out there on the flats, but I know Bobby's seen it some on a time or two. And uh, I don't know, Bobby, what do you what do you think about that? I don't want to talk about them. <laughs> see, that's that's yeah. what I mean, Drew. Don't don't ruin it for yourself. Don't go out hey, there and fly in a permit. I hooked one last time I was in the Seychelles. And I think I talked about this every time I've talked about permit, but God damn it. I lost that fish. It was a monster permit too. Indo Pacifico one. Right. So I'm just so pissed off about it. Really. I can't even. (laughs) It was epic too, though. I mean, this fish was like feeding and we got close to it and see here. I'm going to go got close to it and it just stopped and disappeared. And I just stood there with my guy and he was like, don't worry, it's going to come back. And sure enough, that sucker came right back, and he's tailing, he's tailing, one cast. See his tail go up, fucking rips off. was excited, we were jumping around, and then, bink, just comes unbuttoned. I was, oh, made me drink a lot. See the emotional damage that permit caused. God damn it, I hate fish, you know? And not only that, then you, like, see them, and then they're just gone. It's almost like a bonefish, but worse. Because it's like a gold fish. Just, like, see it, and then, where'd he go? Where'd he go? Oh my god! And then we went snorkeling. I'm really not getting off. The, the alcohol <laughs> is hidden because then we went snorkeling and we were around a coral head, and we dove in the water. Literally saw like a thousand permit just swimming around this coral head. I could touch them, literally with my hands. Couldn't catch them though. Impossible fish. Yeah, that sounds frustrating for sure. Yeah, rant, rant over permit. Hate them. <laughs> yeah uh, here at tide chasers we touch a nerve with permit oh my god um cool yeah that's definitely a lot of bucket list species that are on my list too so that's uh, i find yours to be very relatable um okay so how about your most memorable fishing trip and this could either be something that ended up being a great experience for you or it could be something that was just went horribly wrong but it gave you a good laugh later uh, my most memorable fish, probably w- one time we were in Montana, uh, floating a, a river called Rock Creek, and we hit the salmon fly hatch just perfect, and the the fish were just going crazy, and I casted this salmon fly out at the bank and watched this rainbow coming up to eat it, and then this brown came out of nowhere and just knocked the rainbow out of the way and inhaled the salmon fly, and it was like a nice twenty inch brown, and it was probably the craziest thing I've ever seen a fish do. So that was. That's probably the most memorable for sure. That's awesome. I, I'm picturing that as you're describing it, this brown trout launching itself out of the water and like body slamming the rainbow out of the way to grab the fly. Exactly. Yeah, I know it was pretty crazy. Um, Is there any ever, like, I mean, you're traveling a lot with the team where you were. There has to be disasters. Luggage gone, fly rods broken, or is it... I mean, you're not jumping in here, so maybe it's all streamlines. Maybe there's no disasters ever. No, there's definitely disasters. I would say some of the kids on the team are more organized than others. and, and The ones that have their stuff together and more organized seem to have less things that go wrong for them. <laughs> okay. Uh, and I usually have my stuff together pretty good, so I, I haven't really had anything too bad happen, but definitely some stuff that has happened with the other kids for sure. So organization is key to being successful on Team USA youth fly fishing. Absolutely. I'm out. I would never make it now. 
I'm just thinking about how, you know, and I, I have to ask this question of pretty much everyone I talk to out West because from Southeastern Pennsylvania, the, where I live, the most exotic wildlife that we have is like a white tailed deer or a squirrel. And you guys have some crazy wildlife out there, moose, mountain lions, bears, all kinds of stuff. You ever had any wild encounters with some wildlife out there in New Mexico? Uh, I trying to think I've, I mean, I've definitely had some cool encounters, nothing, I guess, crazy or I guess not too long ago, my buddy and I were walking up this super, super tiny Creek and, uh, we'd come around the corner, just walking through the water and like six yards from us, there's this mountain lion standing there and it like crouched down and it, then we got out of there and that was pretty, pretty crazy for sure. But I've had a lot of buddies that have had some crazy stuff happen, but I don't have anything too crazy that happens very often which i guess can, is a good thing but i don't know i would say that mountain lion encounter is pretty crazy did it see you or did you just see oh, it yeah. no it was it was like leaning down drinking out of the creek and then it saw us and it kind of crouched back like it was getting ready to jump or something so then we just kind of backed out of there and, and lashed i'd be like nope i'm done i don't have you gone back there since i don't think i would i have actually <laughs> <laughs> It's one of those butt puckering experiences. That's the best. Yeah. There's there's no way I could do that. I mean, every every single time I'd walk up that creek, that's the only thing I'd think about. From the moment I got out of the car to the moment that I got to that same spot, I'd be thinking about that mountain lion sitting there waiting for me when I come back. Oh yeah. No, it's definitely always in the back of your head, but there we live in a place where there's a lot of a lot of wild, wild stuff that happens for sure. Yeah, that's that's definitely that's a, definitely one of those uh, butt puckering stories, as Bobby said. <laughs> you got them. Uh, you got those those kangaroo deer down by you. You got mule deer, right? Yeah, we have mule deer, and in northwestern New Mexico, we we have some true white-tailed deer, and then in some places in the southern part of the state, in southwestern New Mexico, kind of closer to the arizona and mexico border we have those little coos deer oh cool i love them yeah i want to i want to go get one of those we have those in maryland they're kind of like an invasive species down there but um no, really. yeah it'd be really cool to see Is yeah i heard the coos deer? deer are super i think you're thinking of the sitka deer body that's what i'm thinking of yeah it's yeah. A sitka. The, the yeah. coos deer are like a smaller version of a white tail but they're like super super skittish apparently from what i've heard yeah, for sure. They're super small, just little mini white tail. Man, I'm missing out west. I need to be there right now. <laughs> the west coast is the best coast. Yeah. <laughs> um awesome. Well, I you know, before we uh get close to wrapping up here, I couldn't leave without asking you, you know, at the twenty twenty three youth fly fishing world championships, you won an individual gold. Um, and then Team USA also took home the, the team champ championship. So what did both of those experiences mean to you? Oh, it was it was super surreal. I mean, since a young age, even as I found out about the team and became involved with the team, becoming a world champion was a really big goal of mine. And I had two world championships to make it happen and 
we didn't we didn't do it last year and so this was my last one to make it happen and after every day of the competition when I was winning sessions and holding that first place spot it just I guess felt more and more nerve-wracking and, and making it all happen in the end watching it all, all come together was really surreal I know yeah, no, one, no one fishes for money but is there any money associated with these prizes no, no, not in not in the fly fishing competitions. Not not like bass fishing in that sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, on a different note, I mean, I'm sure you get to meet some ridiculous fly fishermen or woman. Uh, who who have you met that's been like an idol or somebody that's really meant a lot to you? Um, I mean, there's definitely a lot of those European guys that were are really cool that you got to meet and. One of my my big mentors, he's uh lives here locally in New Mexico. His name is Norman MacTima, and and he was a part of the youth team and fished the first ever youth world championship back in '98, which was held in Wales, UK, and he won individual gold there. And he was the first person from the U.S. to win a gold medal at a fly fishing competition. And so, I guess watching it, bringing it back to New Mexico is something that's special for both of us. Just he won the first one and. He was one of my mentors, and then I was able to go and, and make it happen. And I guess for him, it, he kind of got to see it come full circle. Very cool. Yeah, that's definitely really cool. Not only the fact that, you know, I'm sure it was a really special feeling winning in your final year and kind of going out on top like a lot of people dream of doing, but then also, like you said, to be able to bring it home to your mentor who was one of the first to do it and just so happens to be from your area. Yep. Yeah, I know it was it was really cool because he won the first ever Youth World Championship, and that was twenty some years ago. And then he kind of helped me get to that level I needed to be at to to also do it. And then I was able to to execute and, and put it all together and make it happen. And like you said, come out on go out on top in my last year, and then winning the the team gold medal. I mean, winning as a team was. I guess my number one goal and then the, the individual goal was the cherry on top. So just being able to make them both happen, I mean, it couldn't have been any better. Yeah, that is, you know, winning one of them is a huge accomplishment, but to win both at the same time, you know, individually and then also as a team, that I'm sure there's no better feeling uh, in oh, that yeah. level of competition. Right. No, it was definitely – definitely surreal because it's just I worked really hard for it and I guess as a, a youth competitor that's kind of the, the pinnacle you can reach so it was really special awesome I, one other thing that I, I thought about as we were talking about the the championship so you know we mentioned earlier about all the different countries that compete in these does the U.S. have a rival you know is there is there kind of a rivalry that goes on at all in these competitions um, it seems like, I mean, talking to a lot of the kids, everyone's, I guess, fairly friendly and cool with everyone, but it, it seemed like the Spanish team wasn't a big fan of us and they didn't, they didn't really talk to us and they were kind of jerks to everyone. <laughs> I'm just, I'm but, picturing, you know, you know how the, like the Olympics go when there's, you know, there's one team that usually dominates a particular sport or, you know, there's some country rivalries that go on, like. I always think about the U.S. and Canada and ice hockey. 
you know, I was just kind of wondering if it was anything like that. Yeah, I mean, I guess some of those European teams are kind of rivals the Spanish team and the French team and the Czech team. And the U.S. youth team back in, I don't know, it was quite a few years ago, there was a team they kind of called the Dream Team, and they would always take home the individual and team medals kind of like we did this year. And we haven't had a team at that level in, in quite a few years, and this year was kind of that team. And we – one of our team members won a, the silver individual medal as well. So, Well, that's awesome. So you took home individual gold, individual silver, and the team championship at the same Almost time. Almost individual bronze, but uh, the Czech had gotten by just a little bit. So we, we had an individual fourth place. So we we're almost there, but. That would have been pretty cool for the clean, clean sweep for Team USA. Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> awesome. Uh, Bobby, anything else before we start to wrap it up here? No, I don't think so. I think we covered a lot of ground here in a quick hour. Yeah, we did. I th- I feel like I definitely learned a lot more about competitive fly fishing, something that I probably would not be very good at, uh, especially somebody standing behind me and, and watching. But <laughs> at the same time, I you know, I think it's really cool that there's lots of people out there like yourself, Drew, that can dedicate that kind of time and preparation to it and um, you know, the fact that that's opened up doors for you to, to go out and also then guide, uh, in your home state is fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Uh, well, Drew, before we let you go, maybe you can tell our listeners where they can find you, um, on social media or how they can contact you if they're interested in coming out to New Mexico and booking a trip with you on San Juan. Yeah, for sure. So, uh, all my information is on my website at www boneflyfishing.com and then uh, if you look up bonefly-fishing on Instagram and Facebook you'll also find me there and uh, that's a good way to contact me and and all of my phone number and email and, and everything else is also on my website so that's the best place to find information if you'd like to contact me for sure Awesome, well make sure to do that uh, ladies and gentlemen and Drew, we thank you very much for being on the show with us tonight. That's going to wrap up another great episode of the Tide Chasers podcast. Um, we thank you for tuning in. Make sure to give Drew a follow on social media and reach out to him if you're interested in going to New Mexico and booking a trip on the world-famous San Juan River. Uh, make sure to please give us a follow and subscribe as well. And Until the next episode, tight lines. Tyler, I have one closing remark real quick. Yeah, go ahead, Bobby. We need all the listeners to be aware that you're wearing a shirt right now that says education is important. Fishing is more important. It is indeed. And I think that's the truth. Can't imagine it any other way. So with that, tight lines. Tight lines, everybody. You're listening to the Waypoint Podcast Network, brought to you in part by HuntStand, the number one hunting and land management app. Oh, that's awesome. Don't miss Thursdays with Saltwater Experience. Brought to you by Golden Boat Lifts. Every Thursday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. The destination for outdoor entertainment.